Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Jane Tabachnik, who is the founder of Simply Good Press. She is a content and PR strategist who works with mission-driven authors, coaches, and consultants who are frustrated they're not better known. She helps them become highly visible and seen as the authority in their industry so they attract more pre-sold clients and can grow their business more easily. Founder of Simply Good Press, a book publishing and PR company, Jane has helped over 200 authors achieve bestseller status. Named one of the top 100 people online by Fast Company, Jane is often quoted in the media. And I was really uh, excited to have Jane on. Obviously, you know, some of y'all know that I just launched my first children's book called Luke's First Round of Golf for the eight and under uh, child. It's a cool little read about getting started and has a golf theme to it. And it just happened to work out where Jane was uh, able to be on the podcast. So we chat a lot about book launching. We chat about getting visibility online. Very wide-ranging conversation and tangents as always. Uh, But I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Jane, and uh, I think y'all will as well. So without further ado, please welcome Jane Tabachnik. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, well, I was so excited when we got connected. Um, One, I just obviously, you know, from my personal branding and trying to understand, you know, how people buy stuff, how you get your name, all that different stuff is intriguing to me. But actually seeing that you help publishers and people publishing books and doing all this stuff, I thought was intriguing. Um, just because I'm not gonna, I'm gonna plug it here just because it's fun. But you know, I have my first children's book. I'm holding I it up right now. It's a sample, um, coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, um, depending on when this. Maybe it's already out. But so I was intrigued to kind of talk through a lot of that stuff. So, anyways, I'm going all over the place. Um, well, congratulations! That is a big accomplishment, and you have another you. book as well. I saw your book on podcasting. I, yeah. You know, what's so interesting. I got into, I don't know when I decided I like writing. Um, you know, obviously I've been podcasting for three and a half years, but I just one day, you know, what's so interesting that podcasting ebook, I literally wrote that in one night. I just got this idea because I kept having, what happened was I'm sure actually you probably go through a lot of this is like, I had a lot of people just asking like, um, you know, Brian, I'm trying to start a podcast. What are your thoughts here? Or, Hey, what should I do with that? Or what microphone to use or whatever. And I'm like, I'm just going to write this all so I can send them and say, Hey, here you go, read this. And then it just turned into this like 25 page ebook. Um, so anyways, yeah, I just, I don't know why I've started writing. I actually have another children's book that'll come out later this year. That I'm going to start illustrating here soon. I just, I don't know. I just have this passion for writing all of a sudden, which is fun. But um, anyways, that's, that's uh, we can get into some of that stuff here, but um, I'm actually curious for you and we can start in a lot of different areas, but when did you decide, because obviously it's about getting started, right? And we can go all the way back in your journey and, and share some from there. But it seemed like there was a switch because you were, had worked for some different companies and those type of things early in your career. But then there was this switch of, I'm going to go on my own. 
I'm going to branch out and kind of do some things. I'm kind of curious the mindset, if you take us back there, and, and maybe this is a good launching point of how you came to that realization that, hey, I don't want to work for, other, not that you want to work for others, but like, I kind of can, I want to carve my own path. Let's start there and then we'll go down the path from there. Well, that was actually what I always wanted to do. So I actually started out doing some entrepreneurial things in high school. Oh, okay. But in I, I was conditioned growing up that you can't make money as an entrepreneur, that you need a job and you need security. And so I had that little tape and I still have to fight that tape playing in my mind, um, in my little brain nowadays. So I toggled between being an entrepreneur and having jobs. And I just really am not cut out to be an employee. Wait, what did I've you want to, what did you want to do there when you said, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur when you were younger? Like, was there something in your head you wanted to do? Yeah. So my first career was as a fashion designer and I started out designing my, my own clothing and jewelry. I think I was about 12 when I started designing and so it was something I really wanted to do, but it's a business that has very intense cash flow requirements and it's a really challenging business. So I would start a collection, I'd have sales, and then I'd run out of cash and then I'd take a job. And so it was kind of this cycle of yeah. uh, the jobs sometimes came up because I needed a job and sometimes an opportunity arose. And it was kind of like, oh, that sounds like something great to do. And I think that could teach me some things. I could provide some value to the company and I'd have a steady paycheck. So it was, you know, it was that combination of things and it was a roller coaster. And then about um, 15 years ago now, I had what seemed like my dream job and it turned out it was not good at all. I was the executive director of a business incubator for designers. So it seemed like a great fit. But it just, there were a lot of politics and I don't do that so well. So we parted ways after a year and a half. And I just said, that is it. I'm going to stay in the entrepreneurial lane because that's what I really need to do. Mm. So that's where I've been. What do you think changed mindset wise from earlier in life where, hey, I took a job and, you know, maybe partly, as you said, that was kind of ingrained. And I was in the same way. Like, I didn't know any different when I was younger. It was kind of like, hey, you go to college and you get a job and you build your way up and all this stuff. But what changed later on where you're like, screw this, like, I'm just going to go down the entrepreneurial path. Was there something that you learned or a couple of things you learned about yourself in that time where it's like, no, no, this is what I need to be doing? Yeah, I think it's finally acknowledging that I don't fit well with an, within an organization and that that's okay. And that making the decision and the commitment to stay as an entrepreneur didn't mean that there weren't going to be bumps along the way, but I was in it 200, 2000%. And I wasn't, you know, people say to me, oh, I saw a great job for you. I'm like, thanks, I'm good. So now I don't even go and look, whereas in the past I would have gone and looked at the job and thought, well, yeah, maybe I could do that. So now it's like, no, this is what I do. And yeah, there are times when it gets rough. This last year, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, it was definitely challenging. And there have been other challenging years, but that's part of what keeps you going in a way and keeps you reinventing, which is part of what you need to do as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that reinvention. So when you start, so let's take today and then let's go back to when you were, I guess you said about 15 years ago or so, what was the initial, when you were going out on your own, 
what was that? What were you doing then? And then how did that transition to what you're doing now? Or is it similar? So 15 years ago? Yeah. When you started the entrepreneur journey, what were you doing then? And then what did that transition to doing now? Yeah. So I've had a number of entrepreneurial journeys. The first was as a fashion designer. I had a couple of different companies as a fashion designer, as well as having worked on staff. When I left that business, I took stock of what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing. And that was the PR and the marketing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I came out of the fashion industry doing. And that's what my first entrepreneurial venture was that wasn't in the fashion business. I started a digital agency when the internet just started up. Mm. So I was doing websites, email newsletters. And what I discovered, what I discovered was kind of led me to where I am today was that there, the common thread was everyone needed visibility. Yes. They needed a website. Yes. Maybe they needed an email newsletter, but what they really needed was to be visible and get in front of more of their ideal clients and to share their message. Mm-hmm. So I focus on the visibility now. So PR, and as you mentioned, the publishing, because as you know, writing a book is one of the best authority positioning pieces that you can have and can give you great visibility. Yeah. Um, I want to go down that path a lot, I want, but I want to ask this because I, I, maybe a lot of folks don't come to that realization. Maybe they stay like maybe you in a different, you know, a different uh, parallel dimension, you're staying in fashion design for 15 years. Were there any things that you remember doing? Maybe it was self-awareness practice. Maybe it was uh, mentorship by folks. But how did you come to the realization of like, hey, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm really good at this stuff and I enjoy it. Let's craft, you know, kind of a new path with this. How did you come to that realization? Have you thought about that? Um, So, you know, you get feedback from people. People say you're so great at this. Have you thought about doing that? Or they'll call you up and ask you for your advice about something that isn't like your main thing. So Mm -hmm. people wouldn't call me and say, what dress should I wear to that event? They'd say, you know, I'm having challenge getting some press. You've gotten press for your fashion company. Can you give me some tips? So it was that kind of... um, outreach or those inquiries that I was getting that kind of led me to say, oh, people see me this way. Maybe there's something there that I haven't acknowledged yet to myself. And that got me thinking. So that was really helpful. People seeing me in a way that I wasn't yet seeing myself. Hmm. So if someone, let's talk about, and you could take me as the example, we could take anyone just, but um, just let's talk about branding and visibility as a whole first is there one or two things that should be like table stakes top of the, of the line people should be thinking about, it should be on the radar when they think about, all right, I need to get visibility out there. Maybe it's certain areas they should be always living in or certain content. I, I don't know. I, you take the answer wherever you want, but. Um, yeah. So as much as you need to know who your brand is and what you stand for, you need to understand your audience and where they spend time. So, you know, there are so many platforms out there. People may say to you, you have to be on Instagram. You have to be on Clubhouse now. And all that is great, but no one can really do a good job on all those platforms, especially the smaller you are, the less bandwidth you have, the less resources. So the ideal way to succeed is to know where your audience is and spend time there. So rather than being on a platform where your audience really isn't spending time, 
and wasting your efforts because people tell you you need to be there. I mean, this happened with one of my students last year. She said to me, everyone keeps telling me I should be doing Facebook ads. And I said, I don't see your audience as being on Facebook. They were school administrators. I said, I really think LinkedIn is a better platform for you. Mm-hmm. But every, everyone, all the, ex, the Facebook ads experts were saying, you can find anyone on Facebook. And I said, I don't know. I think you should test it out. And sure enough, she said, you know, they're not on Facebook. No one's responding to my ads. And I put one thing up on LinkedIn and boom, I'm getting traction. Mm -hmm. So that can make all the difference. And it's not just about the money you spend, but it's really frustrating to put messaging out there and not get a response. It really causes you to, you're wasting time and resources, but also it cuts into your self-esteem and your confidence. Yeah. Well, and the consistency too, you know, just on, because there's so many things out there and I think you, yeah, you want to do it all, but at the same time, I mean, I, I like that approach and that's why I've been actually, it's funny we're talking now because I've been really thinking about that is like, you try to like post on different platforms or whatever, but it's like, yeah, what is the bad, like if you, if I could pick one, what would that be for the next one to two years? That would be the most, not that I can't post from time to time on others, but like, where would I dedicate right. the most part of my time? So I like that approach um, because I think we can get, if, if you don't have like 15 people working for you that are doing all the, these, whatever, you know, put out, you know, you know, Gary V saying, put out 55 pieces of content a day or whatever. Well, you know, and I love Gary. I've been following for 10 years, but like, I don't have a marketing team. I don't have a PR right. team. I can't do that. So what's the next best thing, you know? Exactly. What, would be, what, what, what is your point? Someone come, approaches you and says, God, I got to put out 50 pieces of content this week. How do I do that? Your, is your response, uh, no, do not do that? Or, Well, I'd, I'd ask them why they think they need to do that. You know, yeah. it's so much better to put out maybe five great pieces of content than 50 pieces of content because you need to hit a magic number. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they're not good quality, then it's really not serving you anyway. Yeah. Do you, do you find that people should be creating that on their own or should you outsource some of that? Like for, let, let, let's take, um, if it's a longer piece, besides like a post, just like a, a general, but that can even be something like, do you want it to look more graphically appealing? So is it best to, outsource and get that designed or should you try to do that yourself i think that's one of the struggles i always go with i'm fortunate to have a few folks that are graphically enabled in my life so they always do me some solids but like where would you coach people on that um in terms of the actual content and the appearance of it yeah so i don't think there is a one-size-fits-all solution i do think having quality graphics that align with your brand are important like i i know a uh, a marketer who has these hand-drawn little cartoons that she uses in all her marketing and they're great. They work for her. They wouldn't fit for my brand, Mm -hmm. but they're very effective. They're very recognizable and she's consistent with them. So that counts. So, you know, if you're not graphically um, enabled or talented, then it may help to have someone create the graphics or create some templates for you. Like I'm a huge fan of templates or Mm -hmm. using something like Canva to get someone to create some base templates then you go in and just edit the, the actual words or something like that, that can be really, really valuable. Or find some good people to outsource it to selectively, not you know breaking the bank where you've got a whole art department working yeah. for you because that's not really within reach for a lot of us. Um, 
All right. So I'm, I'm going to ask for free advice here. You can, okay. you can, you can invoice me after if you want. Um, the, <laughs> so let's talk about book publishing. Now for folks out there, again, maybe that are having gone down this deep rabbit hole, can you share the difference? Because you're going to do a way better job than I can. Self-publishing versus using a publisher. Some of the key differences they would see in those two avenues. Yeah. So traditional publishing, which is a using a publishing house such as you've heard of Harcourt Brace or Wiley or uh, Penguin, any of those publishing houses work on a different model than if you were self-publishing. So the way that that model works is that uh, the company handles all of the technical backend and publishing for you and some promotion. Nowadays, a lot of traditional publishing houses don't put a lot of money into promoting a book until they see it's getting some traction that it's successful, which mm. seems counterintuitive, but they're risk averse. They've already spent all the money to get the book to market. So they're not going to put a lot of money into marketing it until they see it taking off. Or if you're already a successful author, like a Stephen King, then yeah. they're going to put money behind it. So that process can take two years from start to finish. And you split the royalties with them. Basically, even though the publishing house is paying for all the, the layout, editing, all that upfront, they're going to charge you for it. So when your book makes money, they're going to take all those fees out of your royalties. So even though it seems like they're paying for that, it just means you're not laying out the cash, but you do end up paying for it in a sense. When you self-publish, all of that is up to you, but the good news is that you get to keep all the royalties except what a platform like Amazon or Barnes & Noble would take. You own all the intellectual property. You get to make all the decisions. And it's a much quicker path to market. You could publish a book in a day, a week, two months. It's really up to you how quickly you're able to go through the steps and to publish it. In terms of distribution, you can get the same distribution if you self-publish as if you traditionally publish. Mm -hmm. the, so, the one, Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. Yeah. The one thing I just wanted to say about that is the only difference really is that with a traditional publisher, they uh, will either pay for or have better relationships with the bookstores who will give them shelf space. So your book and my books can be in Barnes and Noble, but they typically don't put them on the shelf. They'll be in the catalog for custom orders, or if the book really took off, they would put it on the shelf, but it doesn't automatically go on the bookshelf in the retail store. Hmm. And is that something like using my example with this, my first children's book, no one knows who I am. Um, could I get into, so I'm just doing Amazon, just full transparency. I'm doing Amazon self-publishing. Um, I'm just doing their, they have like the two, the normal distribution and the expanded distribution. Mm -hmm. I'm just doing the normal so I can keep, so if I want to sell them outside of that, I can. Because I think if you do the sure. expanded, you only, like, you you basically only could sell on Amazon, if I recall, um, looking at the, the legalese. But could I get into, like, a Barnes & Nobles and these other, like, can I approach them and say, hey, I have this book? Or is that not even, like, yeah. would they even put it on there? So you can do it through Amazon's extended distribution, I believe, or you need to be listed in, there are three main catalogs that bookstores and libraries order from. Mm -hmm. One of them is Baker and Taylor. And so if you're not listed in one of those catalogs and you aren't offering the right discount to the retail stores, they're not going to put your book in their catalog. 
Okay. Gotcha. Um, all right. So for a novice, I'm good. So let me tell you what my launch strategy is. Okay. It's not, it's not great. And then you tell me, Brian, this horrible, or you could be doing better. <laughs> so I don't have much of a strategy besides. So I, I have a launch team and my quote unquote launch team. So I got probably about 40 people I know that were willing to like kind of be on this email list. And, and basically I'm doing it in three parts is I, I just sent this out. So by the way, do you, did you know this? So Amazon's very odd where um, I love the opportunity that they even have the platform because someone like me probably wouldn't be able to get their book out, but you can't do a pre-order for the, um, print, the print. So what I did was I put the ebook up and did a pre-order so that people could pre-order that, which means right when the day that it launches, they could actually leave a verified review. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to until they actually got the book or whatever. Um, I don't know if that's a good strategy or not. But anyways, so I got folks, they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna buy the ebook, they're going to put a review, and then they're going to post on their social channels, hopefully more than once, but at least once to kind of spread the word organically. I may do a few Facebook or Instagram ads, um, but that's kind of my approach to it. Curious your thoughts on that. Beat me up on it. What would you What would you say? Well, I think it's a great approach putting together a team, but you're leaving a lot of opportunities out there. So I don't okay. know if you have a social media strategy for the book, but your book, which is a book about a young boy who plays golf, has a lot of potential in the golf market. So you think yes. like Father's Day is coming up in June, I believe. Yep. So dads who are into golf would probably love their young sons and daughters to try golf. So that could be a great kind of segue or mm -hmm. a way to tap into that market. Yeah. And I'd thought a little bit about the, and, but, but do I do that as like an ad or is that like more of organic type reach? Or maybe it's both. I don't know. Yeah. To the, to, Cause I was thinking the father's day could hit really, you know, cause it is about the father and son. Um, so anyways, it could hit home, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so you can try special interest groups. There are golf magazines. I'm sure there's a Facebook group for golfers. There may be a LinkedIn, you know, golf association. So yeah. um, those are great, They're kind of low-hanging fruit. And any local publications where you are, they always like to write about. So local public, this is a, a, a good tip. So this is worth writing down. Local Excellent. publications are a really good place to start. And what's great about them, some of them actually syndicate to other publications, which means that one seemingly small local newspaper may actually publish their content to a number of other newspapers. Hmm. Like there's one I know of in Kentucky that actually then publishes to USA Today. So never poo-poo small or local publications. And the other one is your alma mater. So wherever you went to school, they likely have an alumni newsletter or some kind of a, um, you know, a university magazine where they might be willing to write a story about you or mention the book. Hmm. And that can reach a really great audience just through that alone. Have you found with the, like the local, um, is, do you just reach out to like a general inquiry, inquiry inbox? Is there like a certain contact you found more successful than others to, because obviously they have it listed on the website, the publisher, the editor, all right. that, but 
who's who reach out to all of them? I don't know. What's the No, so it's it's best to start with one. So if you look at the website, they're all different. Some of them may just have a general news box, but the other thing that I like to do is see who's written any articles that seem similar. So there's not going to be an article about someone who wrote a children's book about golf. That's not, you're probably not going to find exactly that, but either something about a local author or um, about getting kids into sports or some story like that, that you could find. And then notice who the author is, the journalist, and try and reach out to them. Hmm. Okay. So reach out to a journalist versus the actual, like just main press box or main uh, editor. Okay. That's a good, that's a good thought there. And I, I didn't think going that far. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, and what about, I guess, is there anything from, so we, I guess we talked a little about the social strategy. Would you do like Facebook ads and stuff like that? I and mean, I guess, I don't know if it would hurt, but if, if I did go that route, is there any coaching, especially being on a trim budget, maybe? Yeah. So, you know, books can be hard to sell from ads if it's not a tie-in around a holiday. So when people are buying for Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, they're specifically looking for items. But um, otherwise, I think books can be really hard to sell and you don't make as much on them. So you have to really be careful. You don't spend that much on your ads or you're really either going to break even or lose money, which is why I'm, you know, I'm thinking of other strategies, uh, you know, like gift guides or lists of best children's books, that, that can be a really good way to go to get the book into a list of new books. Mm. You know, maybe go after someone, I don't know about Tiger Woods, but someone like that and see if you could send them a copy of the book and they'd be willing to, you know, yeah. mention it. Well, I'm hoping, I'm fortunate, you know, I was a PJ professional for many years. I have a background in golf. So uh, fortunately I have some contacts. I'm hoping to shell some books out to and maybe get some buzz. So uh, yeah. we'll see. So based on obviously with your help, you do for a lot of um, authors and those type of things. What is, so let's just take someone listening and says, God, I, you know, Jan, I really want to write a book someday, quote unquote, maybe they write it next year um, or maybe they're already writing it. What is like the general time of, okay, you're writing now, you should launch maybe give this much runway. Like, is there a time on it? I'm just launching this because I finally got illustrations done and I'm like, God, this took a way longer than it should kind of thing. But is there an actual like timeline strategy someone should be thinking of when they're actually rolling out a book and and pre-promotion and all that stuff? Yes. I'm so glad you asked. So what most authors do, and this is unfortunately kind of a mistake because it doesn't serve them as well as it could is they use what I call the helicopter approach. So right before the book publishes, they'll start to maybe tweet a little bit or you know, send down an email. The book publishes, they'll tweet, they'll send down an email, and then within a month, they're done. They don't either don't get much reaction, so they stop talking about it, or they're just moving on to other things, running their business, uh, whatever else it is. And that, unfortunately, really doesn't serve you well for a few reasons. So the best thing you can do is more like the airplane approach where you you start the launch at least a few months before. And what you want to do is actually build what's called your platform. So having a presence on social media, not just a presence, but having some kind of following and engagement so that when you put out a post, you get some interaction. So it's less about the numbers really than the engagement, although often having big numbers can 
or sizable numbers means that you've got some kind of following and engagement. So that's really important to build up before you publish the yeah. book, right? And having a launch team like you're doing is excellent. That just is such a giant help because none of us can do it alone. It really takes a team to do it. And then after the book is published, to continue to promote it, to speak about it, to seek out opportunities because a book is one of these lifetime achievements. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are only a few outlets that won't talk about or write about your book other than within the first, say, three months that it's published. But other than that, you can always get either press or stories or interviews around your book or the contents of your book. So it's an asset that's really valuable and it's something you can always use. It's something that you can always keep in your bio and speak about as part of your profile or your title. Yeah. Well, and, and I think too, partly is, you, well, and I, well, I guess you can always, you know, if it's a book about a specific time frame, maybe does that pass? Is it not evergreen? But a lot of stuff, you know, most of the time, it'll probably be good for year. You know, like I, I'm assuming this children's book, hopefully it'll be good for a year or two down the road or 10. Um, but yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, that's, that's what I was kind of thinking. I was like, for this specific, I'm like, yeah, what happens after a few months? I mean, sure, I can keep promoting it, but does that kind of just get whatever? But would you encourage then to in the future, so let's say three to six months after launch, try to get on, you know, almost present it like it is new. Like, hey, there's a lot of buzz here still. Would love to get on a podcast or an interview or whatever. Is that your encouragement or would you go another Abs route? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would never try and make it sound like, not, I don't think you're suggesting that, but that it's new. Yeah. You know, you have to be um, authentic and genuine and honest about that. But absolutely, keep trying to promote that. And with something like golf, I mean, this is a good template for any kind of a book that's topical. You've got events all year long around golf that you can tap into. The Masters is going on. You can talk about, imagine, you know, I forget the the gentleman's name who just won. I watched the end of the... Um, oh, Hideki Matsuyama. Hideki, yeah, thank yep. you. So, you know, you could tie it into that and say, imagine if, if, you know, a young boy is reading this book and can see himself like as Hideki, fast forward 20 years, you know, you can tie into it every time there's some kind of a PGA event. That's a lot of promotional opportunities each year. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, for all the dads who would love to, you know, coach their sons to be in the PGA, you need to buy this book. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. I'm, I'm hopeful it'll be like that. Yeah, you can be blatant about that. You know, you need this book. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about too, kind of, and this is kind of, I know we're talking a lot about book writing, but which is good, because I think I'll, I actually personally believe, it's so funny, I was sitting around the uh, the fire with a bunch of friends this past weekend, and and they were talking about the book, like, oh, it's, you know, that's awesome, it's coming out, and I'm like, everyone around this fire should be writing a book. I was like, you guys all have life stories that you could share in one way or another. Do you agree the same thing or, or not? Like, do you think people should put their, put themselves out into the world like that, or? Well, I'm a huge fan and I love helping people do that, but not everyone is comfortable doing that. And not everyone, I think, is up for the challenge of what it takes to write a book, whether it's a few pages or, you know, many hundreds of pages. Writing a book is a huge undertaking. And as you know, the work really starts when you finish writing it. Then you've yeah. got to get it published and then you've got to promote it. So it's not something that I think everyone should take on if they're not willing to do 
what it takes to get results from it, whatever those results mean for them. Mm. Um, what is, I, want to, I kind of want to transition with that is I saw this assessment you're doing. I was going to go through it prior, but I'm like, we could either A, go through it while we're on the call or maybe just walk me through it. Cause I was like, I almost want, to, I like the surprise of it, but I have it pulled up on one of my other screens. Um, tell me about this assessment. Is, is this for folks that have never written before or can anyone do this? Yeah. So I created a visibility assessment and the idea behind it is to help you see how you're doing in terms of creating visibility for yourself, your brand, your book, whatever it is. And just to identify what else you could be doing, where the other opportunities are. It's not meant to be judgmental or critical. People say, oh, I'm nervous to take it. It's fun. Yeah. Trust me. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's short, but it just is really an educational tool. And hopefully it will help people see that they're, maybe they're leaving a little money or opportunity on the table where they could get more visibility, which would help them. Because being visible means that people can find you, they know who you are, they know what you do. And it's a lot easier when you have that rather than trying to do the outreach and get in front of people and try and kind yeah. of hammer your message into them. So if they're finding you, if it's more organic and you're magnet magnetically pulling them to you, whether it's by the books you've written or the content you put out, it's a lot easier with that visibility. Yeah. Do you recommend everyone have like instead of this is like a concept obviously that's you know the last few years has come to I guess fruition a little bit more around owning your own database so having a like a newsletter or sign up versus relying on Instagram or LinkedIn do you sign up for that philosophy or do you have another approach of like where when people get an audience like yeah they might have a like on Instagram but how do they continue to connect with that same person what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's really important to have both actually, but you know, if you have your audience on platforms you don't own, what if Instagram disappeared tomorrow, which probably won't happen, but you never know, your whole audience could disappear. So it's great if you have a following on Instagram or Facebook, Twitter, whatever platform is to find a way to bring them onto your website, into your newsletter and communicate with them there as well. Different content, because if it's the same content, they're not going to be as interested. But if you're giving them special content mm. via your newsletter, you're going to keep them engaged and you get to interact with them in both platforms or multiple platforms, which is ideal. Yeah. That's a lot to think about. It, it is. <laughs> what, uh, what have you found is, the, is like the hardest part of your journey, kind of getting to this point? when you reflect back for me. Yeah. Hmm. That's such a good question. Um, I think the hardest part are the times when I haven't believed in myself or believed that I could do something. So one of the fun things that I get to do with my clients is that I get to hold a big vision for them, sometimes bigger than they hold for themselves. And, and this was kind of fun because this kind of came full circle recently. I have an author who has been with me for, uh, about a year and three quarters, we've been working on her book and it's just about to publish. And she called me the other day, really excited. She got the endorsement of someone who's like a legend in her industry. And she said to me, do you remember our first coaching session together? And I said, not specifically. She said, you asked me to imagine that I was holding my published book in my hand and on it was an endorsement from 
like the most exciting person I could think of. And it was this person. Mm. So I had helped her have this vision. And then she actually had gotten this endorsement from this legend. So it was super exciting to hear that and to have it actually happen for her. Wow. Well, so now two, two, I'm going to go on two angles here. Um, Let me first with the, 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 the one personally for you, do you feel you have a hard time because you can envision for other people and kind of, do you have a hard time doing that for yourself? Sometimes putting the vision board up. Sometimes. Yes. I think it's fairly common. I was actually just having this conversation with a, a friend this morning about, she was saying, I can't believe this this big marketer doesn't know how to market himself about X, Y, Z, because someone who's fairly well-known had reached out to her to ask her about how she markets one of her services because he couldn't sell it himself. And so I said, well, that's not surprising really because, you know, we can't see our own forest for the trees as it were. So whereas we can be so clear and and brilliant for other people, it's just, I think, one of those things. Yeah. Well, how do you overcome? Because you seem very, very humble, very modest with all the achievements you've had. Like, how do you overcome Thank that? You. I mean, how do you get to that and say, no, 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 I, I want to go here. Here's what I need to do. Are there any practices you go through? Or Yeah. So I think it's a question of surrounding yourself with really good people not, and not just people who will yes you. It's great. The people who love you and support you and say, yes, it's great. It's wonderful to everything you do. That's nice, but that doesn't really serve you. So to have people who you know and trust and respect who will say to you, cut the BS, yeah. or they'll say you're thinking too small, I think that you, you're you just not thinking big enough here. You This has so much more potential, and you have the ability to achieve that. So I think that really makes a difference. Mm. How have you carved out those individuals? Something I've been really over the last four or five years going through, not cutting people out of my life, but you know, you may not ask them for advice and stuff as much as you do others. How have you gone through that practice of getting those right individuals in those seats, if you will? Um, Such a good question. I think to some extent it's luck, but it's also being very conscious and very selective about who you trust, who you ask for advice, like, you know, I crack up when I see in, in a Facebook group or even a LinkedIn group, people will say, what do you think of my book cover? You know, and you get all this feedback on there. What do you think of this logo? And the logo is terrible. And I have to stop myself, say, Jane, don't get involved. You know, <laughs> But um, you don't want to just ask anybody for advice. You want to make sure there are people who, you know, have credentials in that area and that you respect and you know that you have aligned values because someone can be a genius in whatever it is you do, but maybe they don't share the same values as you. So that would make a difference. Yeah. Or so, the context is all right. That they don't have context behind. Right. Cause someone can say, Oh, the blue's not good in that logo. Well, maybe blue is a big part of your, you know, your exactly. Brand. Exactly. So yeah. you want to make sure that they've got the whole picture before they're weighing in, but, and you know, also maybe you do a small test to see what kind of feedback you get from them and, and just see if it rings true or if they're uh, being supportive in the right way, but not yesing you, Yeah, you know, and sometimes you need a little time to step back because sometimes when someone is honest and supportive, and even if they give their feedback in a, in a, kind of neutral way if you're like me and you're sensitive you can kind of take a little bit of either offense or take it to heart and so it's always good to give it a few days to sit there go back to it and go oh 
okay, now I'm not being emotional about it. I see what they meant and there's merit to what they said or, yeah, that doesn't ring true for me. So I'm not going to, mm. you know, to heed that. Mm. All right. So I'm going to go on a total different tangent because what I mentioned, I had that something else you had said, how did that individual, and you can name drop their book if you want and you don't have to, um, how did they get that big person or whatever? Was it just a email out? Was it like, did they have to go through 30 people and get connected the dots? Like yeah. I'm, I'm more curious cause that's a huge accomplishment if they got yeah. some, what would be considered a bigger name to, to back the book? Yeah, for sure. So we actually have a process that we use, which we do email outreach, but in this case, they actually knew that one of their close contacts had a close relationship with this person. Mm. So they reached out to this close contact and said, you know, I've got this book coming out. I, this It would mean the world to me to get an endorsement from this person. Would you be willing to make a request? And I'll give you a blurb. I'll give you, you know, everything you need. So they didn't have to go and spend time trying to figure anything out of what to say. But they were able to get that facilitated through mm. a connection. So it's always helpful to have a warm connection to help you do that. But, you know, people have gotten very creative getting those endorsements. I know uh, Felicia Slattery uh, used a video she made on YouTube for someone and then pinged the person I think on Twitter and said, hey, I made a video for you, check it out. And so, you know, or a bunch of people said, hey, check out this video. It's got your name in it. And so the person went and looked and said, sure, I'll do the endorsement. Yeah. So, you know, you can have fun with it. Well, you actually brought up a good point there. And I see this from the sales world a little is making it easy. Uh, like if you're asking for a referral or something like that, like putting the content together, even writing yes. the email to them. Hey, copy and paste. Maybe if you change one word versus, you know, doing all this legwork just to be able to, um, you know, because I, I think I'm going to do that unless you tell me otherwise, I guess I'll ask, like, that's what I was going to do for the reviews on Amazon is, Hey, here's two or three kind of stock reviews. You're going to probably like the book anyways, you know, you're going to do whatever. Here's two or three stock reviews and then just make some edits to it that you like. Would you recommend going down that route or, or not? Uh, I would check Amazon's terms of service. Just make sure it doesn't violate that and make sure they're not listening to your podcast, <laughs> not to sound paranoid, but um, otherwise, I think that's a great philosophy because, you know, people hate staring at a blank page. Yeah. So if you give them some guidance then or sort of a template, then it makes it much easier for them. And they also don't want to offend you. They want to do the right thing if you make yeah. a request of them. So if you give them any kind of guidance, I think it's really helpful. All right. Maybe I'll give them some guidance. I'll give them some keywords to and then yeah. let them craft it. Hopefully yeah. Amazon doesn't blacklist me. I mean, I'm not doing any, you know, the people yeah. have to leave the review themselves. I'm not telling, I'm not actually leaving it for them. So. I yeah. <laughs> I just like to state that, you know, Amazon can do some weird things. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm appreciative of them having the platform. So. Yes. Um, what, uh, well, let me ask you this then. Let, let's go, let's go down this rabbit hole for a minute because I always like to go back on the podcast and I want, again, look at the alternate dimension, um, if you will, right? You got to go back to that younger self, maybe that the designer back at 12. Um, what advice would you share? Maybe something you've learned all over this incredible journey that has been the most impactful for you. What would you share to that younger self? Um, maybe in hopes that they take that advice and heed it um, on their journey going forward. 
I think it would be to find mentors to, you know, to always be on the lookout for good mentors, because that is an invaluable way to succeed on your journey. And also, I think it would be to find out uh, what your audience would be willing to pay for something that they valued instead of thinking, well, I wouldn't pay that price for something, so I couldn't charge that price. So I've been guilty of thinking that, well, that seems like too much because, you know, I'm not in the Rolls Royce set. That's not me. But I did sell some clothing to a few stores. Some of my designs were in a few upscale boutiques and um, I could have charged more than I did, but I couldn't envision paying that much for something. So it, it was a sticking point and I wasn't really pricing my product properly for that reason. So you sometimes have to not think as the client because you may not be your own best client. Interesting. And you're talking about even like prior what you're doing now, was Absolutely. that a challenge getting the right pricing? Did you, did you have to like just throw numbers out there or did you, how, how did you get to like knowing what to charge with what you're doing now? Yeah. So, you know, it's really been a process. So when I started out, I wasn't charging that much and I realized that it was partly what I just mentioned, not being able to see myself paying that much for a service, but I also had some money mindset issues. So I actually hired a money mindset coach mm. and worked with him. And by the time, a few months later, I think I had tripled my prices. And to this day, you know, pricing is an interesting thing. So with the publishing work that I do, I'm probably in the middle. There are people who are cheaper than me. There are people who are more expensive. And I'm comfortable where I am. Uh, one of my prices I just raised recently because the last three people who hired me said, gee, you're you're really more affordable than anybody else. <laughs> okay, not that I'm, I'm looking to be, you know, so expensive, but I just thought, oh, maybe there's a little more room for pricing on this service and we can add a few more features to it and then I would feel good about that. So that's what yeah. we did. No, I think that, you know, that's always evolving, right? Is figuring out yes. what, and, and two, you know, kind of that whole, juggle of like, would you rather have 20 awesome clients or a hundred that are just kind of, you know, but it's so much extra time you have to spend and maybe you're making a little more money, but it's not worth it because of the time investment, you know? So it's right. always that juggle back and forth. Um, exactly. And the interesting thing, I didn't believe this when I first heard it, but people who pay more are typically better clients hmm. because they often see the expense as um, an investment rather than someone who really can't afford it and is, you know, looking for a deal, not looking for the best service, but looking for what is in their budget is going to be uh, unhappy about. They're going to be resenting the expense right. on an ongoing basis. And they often don't have other assets that they'll need. So they're harder to work with. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great stopping point. Um, I would love to go on for a couple more hours with you because we can probably go down the rabbit hole, maybe part two someday if you're up for it. Absolutely. Um, Jim, where can everyone find you online? Where's the best spot to connect with you, say hello, whatever they'd like to do? Sure. So if you go to simplygoodpress.com, you can find the visibility assessment and you can connect with me. I love the name too. It's simple. It's just... <laughs> Oh man, this is awesome. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for uh, sharing wisdom. I, I'm going to take some of your advice, heat it, um, and I'll let you know how the uh, the book launch goes um, with, the, with the first children's book. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Brian.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And thanks again for stopping by the Just Get Started podcast. Uh, Grateful to have you here. And if I could just make one quick ask before you run along on your day, you know, I've grown this podcast organically over the last three plus years. And it's from the great listeners that pick up, you know, a quote or a key learning or just enjoy the entertainment of the podcast and they share it out to their audience. They leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, And I'd ask that for you as well. If you've made it to this point and are listening in, um, a lot of the podcast uh, platforms that you listen on have a share button right there where you can share it out to your audience on various platforms. So I would be so appreciative if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second to do that um, if you really enjoyed this episode. So thanks again. Um, Happy to connect online. I always love to meet new people. So if you want to go to my website, brianandraco.com or connect with me. I'm at Brian Andreco, basically everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, even Clubhouse, that new app that's out there. Uh, you name it. So uh, follow me online and uh, certainly look forward to connecting further. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.